This is a podcast from BFM 89.9, the business station. BFM 89.9, it's 7.07 Wednesday. 31st of January, where did January go? Of course, you're listening to The Morning Run with Philip C and I'm Wong Xiaoning. In about 30 minutes, we'll be discussing uh, the winding up order for China's Evergrande Group and its impact on the broader economy. Bear in mind, this is the world's most indebted property company. But in the meantime, let's recap how global markets did yesterday. In the US, the Dow was up 0.4%, S&P 500 down 0.1% and the Nasdaq down 0.8%. Over across in Asia, the Nikkei was up 0.1%, Hang Seng down 2.3%, Shanghai Composite down 1.8%, Singapore's STI up 0.3% and back home, FBM KLCI down 0.2%. Okay, so for some thoughts on where markets are going for the rest of the week, we speak to Carlos Casanova, Senior Economist at UBP. Good morning, Carlos. Now, let's talk about Asian markets. And of course, we've got the headline news coming out that there has been a Hong Kong court order against Evergrande for liquidation. Now, in terms of the bigger picture, what does this then mean for China's property sector as well as the broader economy? Hi, good morning. So we are definitely experiencing another busy week in Asia in terms of the news flow um, with one of the items that has been dominating the agenda this week so far uh, being that um, order by um, the Hong Kong court to force liquidation of some assets um, in mainland China. Remember that uh, the company is listed in Hong Kong, um, but about 80 or 90 percent of its uh, uh, assets um, worth approximately 300 billion are in mainland China. Now, um, the Hong Kong Special Administrative Region and the central government do have agreements um, to expedite the liquidation of assets um, on the mainland um, in case of a dispute in Hong Kong. But given the size and scale of this um, case, uh, you know, we think it's, it's rather unlikely that that's going to happen, especially as the central government has been focused um, on ensuring that the homes that were already sold um, get completed and delivered. That is the first step of um, the government's approach to addressing some of the issues in the housing sector. So although this liquidation case might get in the way in cases of domestic investigation and some projects have to be put on halt and it takes you know six months longer um, than it should, um, we don't think that it will have a meaningful impact on the central government's plan to, to address the housing sector. They are very much going uh, to the beat of their own drum um, and I, I don't think that it's, it's possible to implement the, the liquidation order in the mainland China. So um, it, it is, in one, in, in a sense, uh, a little bit minor because I don't think it's an action that can be enforced in mainland China. But of course, um, it is. China is trying to pull off a very difficult balancing act here um, in the housing sector, and so anything that potentially delays or complicates that just adds pressure um, to the outlook of 2024. So. Um, to answer your question in a, in, a, in, a, in a sentence before we move on to the next uh, topic, um, I do think that if it complicates um, efforts by the central government, um, given the weight of the real estate sector in China's economy, economists might have to look at revising their GDP growth forecast slightly. But uh, we, we are not there yet, so we're still following this very closely. And Carlos, let's take a macro view on China. In your commentary, you state that China is likely to lower their bank reserve requirement ratio further while leaving the loan prime and medium, medium-term lending rates untouched. What factors will lead the PBOC to target the former over the latter? 
So yes, we we see this um, desperate need to deliver more policy stimulus, and yet they seem reluctant to do so. Um, and that is possibly because they have less policy room to deliver, uh, you know, a, a big bang or a bazooka of support measures. Um, we think that given the continuing narrative on U.S. dollar strength in the first half of this year, um, they are not going to be in a position to do um, medium-term lending facility or loan prime rate cuts. Um, they are also worried about some issues in monetary policy transmission. So they end up cutting the MLF um, and the loan prime rate. And then that money doesn't end up flowing into the right sectors of the economy, or it doesn't end up flowing at all because there's no private sector investment. Um, and so, you know, it would be a bit futile. Um, on the other hand, with every um, sort of 50 basis points or so in triple R cuts, they see 1 trillion yuan, which is a sizable amount. Every fiscal stimulus package they've announced so far is 1 trillion yuan of the liquidity that can be used to make sure that there is enough credit in the system that we don't have a credit event. Um, and so remember that um, the triple R was, is very high in China because during the, the heyday years, you had uh, double-digit export growth and there were structural factors supporting yuan appreciation, um, which was uh, eroding China's terms of trade. So they had to intervene in the markets and sterilize through triple R's, uh, through higher reserve requirements in foreign currency to make sure that um, there was a, not an excessive demand um, you know, for, for, for Chinese yuan. As we enter a new phase where we don't have structural factors um, that push uh, the UN um, in, in an appreciatory direction, we are more in the opposite direction mm -hmm. now. In fact, mm -hmm. um, there is absolutely no need to keep such high reserve requirement ratios. If you look at reserve requirement ratios across the world, in the US, they're 0%. In Switzerland, they're 25 In other emerging markets in Asia, they're 4.55%. Um, so at 10%, China still has ample room mm -hmm. to do triple R cuts. And each triple R cut would be equivalent to the size of some of the fiscal stimulus packages that they were announcing last year. So that's why we think that that's going to be the key to ensuring that that support is still there for 2024. No bazooka, but definitely at least 100, if not more basis points in triple R's. Okay, and Carlos, I want to ask you about US because there's been a flurry of job data coming out last night. And we know that the Fed is going to make a decision, well, to either keep rates as it is, or maybe very early cut rates. What are your expectations as they meet on Wednesday night, uh, uh, US time? Yeah, I think well, my expectations, but also in the market right now, is not expecting any move um, on Wednesday. Um, we, for a number of reasons, including you know some mixed data on the job front, but also the US economy um, expanded more rapidly than expected in the fourth quarter. So that completely rules out the possibility of a recession in 2024. And we are looking at a very, very comfortable soft landing for them. Um, so uh, what we are seeing now is a slight repricing in the market. I think it, it will take a little bit more uh, positive news on the labor front for the market to price this fully. But where we are going, in my opinion, is um, towards a less aggressive rate cutting cycle in 2024 um, and with a slower start. We are thinking that they might be in a position to do something around May or more likely June, um, and they will justify that cut um, against the backdrop of rising real rates. So what we are seeing in the U.S. is a decline in, in inflation, and provided that nothing happens with oil prices, uh, with everything that's happening in the Red Sea, um, we should continue to see declining CPI numbers. That means that real rates in the U.S. are rising. And that is what the Fed is going to argue when they deliver that first rate cut. But it will be later than expected. And it's very unlikely that they will move 
right before or right after the election in November. Um, so we think that that doesn't leave them much room to do more than two to maybe say three rate cuts uh, in 2024. So I think that's where things are heading, given the stronger macro data. They don't really have an argument other than the real rates with the inflation coming down. Mm. Um, and so and so unfortunately, the, mar- the, the market is going to have to reprice uh, some of the uh, um, dovishness that we see out there. All right, thank you very much for your time. That was Carlos Casanova, Senior Economist at UBP, uh, explaining the impact of the Evergrande saga, what that might mean for the Chinese economy with perhaps a, a negative impact on GDP, although the cut in reserve ratio is equivalent to actually a mini fiscal stimulus package. <laughs> That's a very good point, actually. But I guess the Chinese government doesn't have much room also, right, to navigate these really choppy waters. The question also is that it's a very it's a very different story in the US, right? We're seeing, you know, that there's quite a lot more resilient uh, resilience in the US economy there. Yeah. Uh, let's turn our attention to some very important tech news because this week, five out of the seven Magnificent Seven are reporting. And we want to look at Alphabet shares. Of course, Alphabet is the uh, parent of Google. Now, they reported fourth quarter revenue with sales climbing 13% to $86 billion US dollars compared to a year earlier. Now, even though this is the highest ever quarterly revenue, breaking its third quarter rev- record of $76 billion because net profit also jumped 52% to $21 billion. These are quarterly numbers, not mm, annual numbers. Absolutely. Market wasn't happy. Share price actually corrected. <laughs> You're right. You know, if you look at the numbers, ad revenues up 11%. Google Cloud revenue up 26%, right? If you see all the numbers across the board, really, really good. YouTube up 16%. So it's a very interesting dynamic here that the numbers look very good, but markets weren't responding well to the numbers. Well, there was some disappointment in terms of the traditional ad revenue. So that was the weak spot here. But really, these stocks are priced to perfection, right? Mm. On a year-to-date basis, uh, Alphabet is already up 8.5%. Now, the street generally loves this name. 54 buys, 10 holes, no sells. Consensus target price, 160 US dollars and 41 cents. During regular market hours, it was already down $2.05 to $151.46. So any any sign or any hint of disappointment, market's going to take it as an excuse to sell. So that's the problem when you call them the magnificent seven. The magnificent word, you know, implies so much high expectations with the sock. I wonder in the end, will they shift from being the magnificent seven to the maleficent seven? Okay, that's a good one. Um, turning our attention to another stock, another granddaddy of them all, Microsoft. Now, they too posted strongest revenue growth since 2022, boosted by new AI products that is driving spending on cloud computing. So the cloud computing was the... Okay, it was supposed to be good, but that's also the reason. Guess what? This stock also didn't do well mm. um, in aftermarket hours, despite the fact that you have revenue rising 18% <laughs> to $62 billion US dollars and net income rising 33% to $22 billion. I know, as, as, as you were saying, right, cloud up 20%. It's productivity not and business enough. process. That's not enough. Point. right? Up 13%. It's personal computing up 19%. Still, investors were not happy with the numbers. Yeah, so um, the stock is up 8.6% on a year-to-date basis. Another one of those darlings because we are talking about 60 buys, 5 holes, no sells, consensus target price for this stock, 
434 US dollars and 98 cents. Last done price during regular market hours, 408 dollars and 59 cents. That was actually down one dollar and 13 cents. Looks like another one of those price to perfection. Any reason to take profit, and you do see the selling coming across. But up next, we'll be covering the top stories in the newspapers and portals this morning. Stay tuned. BFM 89.9. You have been listening to a podcast from BFM 89.9, the business station. For more stories of the same kind, download the VFM app.